Writing in Haaretz, Sam Sokol notes that Jewish leaders are not planning to leave the Ukraine, but are preparing their communities for the rigors of warfare. At the same time, Israel is making plans to accommodate Ukrainian Jews in hotels. What is actually going on? Sam would know. He is the international and Jewish affairs correspondent. He was the international and Jewish affairs correspondent for the Jerusalem Post and has written extensively about Ukraine. His writings culminating in a book called Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews, Anti-Semitism, Propaganda and the Displacement of Ukrainian Jewry. Sam is now a journalist for Haaretz and a research fellow at the Institute for, uh, for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy. Sam, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Sam, you have spent time in the Ukraine among the Jewish communities. Just remind me what you were doing there and what you saw. In short, in 2014, after the Ukrainian revolution, when they ousted a very, very corrupt pro-Russian president who was using violence against his own people, the Russians looked at what was going on and said, you know, uh, we can't allow Ukraine to to go into the Western orbit. So they come in and Ukrainian uh, Russian forces come in and they annex the Crimean Peninsula and they foment a Russian-led and financed rebellion in the east of the country. And part of their sort of uh, justification for this action was saying, we have to defend Russian speakers because, you know, Ukraine is split between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. We have to defend Russian speakers and Jews and other minorities. Meanwhile, the Jews are going, you know, leave us out of this. What, what does this have to do with us? And what Putin ended up doing by, you know, invading Eastern Ukraine in 2014 was displacing uh, multiple Jewish communities, you know, sending thousands of Jews into, into flight as refugees. And between 2014 and 2018, 30,000 Ukrainians ended up making Aliyah to Israel just to get out of the country. And it has been a bit of a disaster. Last few years, the conflict has sort of toned down to just, you know, it's turned into a frozen conflict. You have both sides in trenches lobbing, uh, you know, lobbing uh, mortars at each other. It's very much like sort of a, a World War I trench warfare kind of conflict. And it's now threatening to go hot again. The Russians have massed maybe around 150,000, give or take, troops on the border. They're, they say they're not going to invade, but they're making all sorts of demands. And yesterday we saw it heating up with uh, artillery fire just across the front lines with you know, shells even hitting a kindergarten. And wow. the Ukrainian Jewish community, they're, they're saying we're not going to leave, but they're making preparations in case they have to because they very well remember what happened last time. Uh, I spoke to, a few days ago, I spoke to one rabbi in Kiev who used to be the rabbi of a community in eastern Ukraine that was destroyed. And his response, I asked him, what, what are your plans? Was just, oh, God, no, no, what the hell? I can't do this again. I can't take it anymore. It's, it's a community that's just been battered, and they just, they just can't deal with it. Um, we, we are Friday the 18th of February. What are the chances of war? What are the chances of war? There's only two people who know what the chances of war actually are. And that's uh, Vladimir Putin and God himself. Because God only knows. It, it depends on really one man. It depends on Vladimir Putin. If he decides to go to war, it's going to be a war. If he decides to 
claim a victory and say that he's gotten some sort of moral victory or did, done economic damage to Ukraine or however he wants to spin it, he controls the Russian media. He can spin it however he wants to make it a victory for himself and pull the troops home. It's sort of there's there's a certain point, you know. He first of all he can get a lot of his objectives just by threatening Ukraine by keeping troops on the border by saying by sort of showing you know if you ever want to move more towards the West I'll do a show of force and the West is going to drop you. He's he doesn't necessarily need to invade and even if he used force he doesn't have to use everything as he could use this you know a small smaller forces he could do things through his proxies uh, you know but on the other hand. Nobody really knows. He could just decide to move in and aim for Kiev tomorrow. It's it's really sort of uh, you know a toss up. It's a mystery. And is in America making noises? Where is Israel sitting on this conflict? So Israel is in a very awkward situation because uh, Israel has very good relations with both sides, and there are large Jewish communities in both uh, in both countries, which uh, Foreign Minister uh, Yair Lapid has repeatedly said constrains Israel's actions. Moreover, Israel has been operating in Syria, attacking Hezbollah positions for years and trying to limit uh, weapons transfers from the Iranians that transit Syria. And the problem is that without security coordination with the Russians, who are also present in Syria, a lot of Israel's strategic interests in the region are really threatened. So the Israelis are trying to really walk a tightrope now, this has really upset the Ukrainians to a large degree. Uh, they had said, so that's really enraged the Ukrainians. Uh, they sent a senior diplomat from Kiev to Jerusalem to meet with Lapid last week. And they were, you know, they weren't asking for weapons. They weren't asking for, you know, any sort of military support. What they were asking for was two things. One was a statement of uh, moral support which they didn't get. They didn't get you know, Israel making a strong statement against Russia. Israel said, we want peace, we want negotiation, but they haven't said, we support Ukraine's territorial integrity, Russia stop. And the Ukrainians were in, really incensed, enraged that they didn't get that. And two, they wanted Israeli, the Israelis to act as mediators because they have this good relationship with both Kiev and Moscow. And at one point, the Israelis did try, and they were rebuffed by the Russians. and. They haven't really been pushing since. And the Ukrainian position is Israel should keep pushing and trying to become a mediator because they're perfectly positioned to you know, be a go-between between the two sides. And look, the last few weeks of Israeli-Ukrainian relations have been very, very unpleasant. Uh, Yair Lapid made statements regarding, uh, regarding the conflict that they didn't like the Ukrainian ambassador in Israel. Uh, Made you know insulted uh, Lapid during a during in a uh, Facebook post, really you know ripping into him, accusing him of sharing Russian propaganda. In response, the Israeli Foreign Ministry called the Ukrainian ambassador. They summoned him for addressing down at the ministry. A week later, there were news reports coming out in Israeli media that the Israelis had contacted the Russians and requested to cooperate in case of a Russian invasion in order to evacuate Israelis, saying. You know, if you guys invade Ukraine, we want to collaborate with you for in evacuating Israeli civilians. And from the Israeli perspective, this is, okay, we do what we have to for our civilians. The Ukrainian perspective, this is, okay, these people are invading our country and you're going to talk with them. Okay, if you do this, we want to have any sort of collaboration, even humanitarian. It's just 
you know, unacceptable to the Ukrainians. And a few hours after that news came out yesterday, I get a call from a Ukrainian diplomatic source, you know, very, very angry saying, uh, who do you think we are? Do you think we're Gaza? And within about an hour from then, the Israeli ambassador to Ukraine was called to the carpet at the foreign ministry in Ukraine. And all of this is on of the fact that the Israelis almost shut down their embassy in Kiev recently. The uh, there was a dispute over pay, and the for and the finance ministry decided the the you know despite the ongoing conflict, the diplomats in Kiev didn't need their uh, extra hazard pay for being in a in a country that's at war. And what they did is they decided to retroactively take some of that away. And in December they basically took away half of everybody's salary for the month. And so now, like a couple of weeks ago, the Israeli diplomats and staffers at the embassy in Kiev said, you know, we're not going to take this crap. And they said, we're closing down the embassy despite the crisis, despite the efforts to get Israelis out, unless we get our, our paychecks because, you know, we can't afford to live. So they narrowly avoided that. But the last few weeks of Israeli-Ukrainian relations have just been a mess, an absolute mess. And in the meantime, this is happening as Israel is trying to evacuate its citizens and not having all that much luck. There's about an estimated 15,000 Israelis in Ukraine. Over the past week, since Israel declared a state of emergency, uh, they've managed to get out about 3,100 as of yesterday afternoon. There's at least 2,000 Arab Israelis uh, studying uh, at universities in Ukraine, mostly medical students. You have the ultra-Orthodox uh, who Israelis who live year-round in the pilgrimage city of Uma. The former Israeli ambassador to Ukraine got on, you know, went into the media yesterday to the ultra-Orthodox media, uh, begging people to to leave, uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews to leave Ukraine. Uh, that ambassador in question happens to be uh, Orthodox himself. You know, the chief rabbi put out a letter saying, you know, anyone. You know, anyone who fears God should get the hell out of Ukraine and come to Israel. Uh, the Israelis are really trying to get their people out because, you know, they do know and they do remember what happened last time around, which was just a very disaster. I mean, Sam, you mentioned that the Ukrainian uh, jury are decimated and still remember very clearly what happened the last time. How many Ukrainian Jews are there and where are they based? Okay. Yeah. So that's the million dollar question. Depends on who you ask. Look, uh, I've seen estimates from, you know, professional demographers as low as 70,000. If you ask Chabad, it's up to 200,000. And nobody really knows. And there's this wide range of numbers that people are giving. You have to, to, to realize that in the former Soviet Union, it's very hard to even have a discussion about this where people are on the same page because... One person will be giving a number, and that's he's giving the halachic definition of Jews. Uh, someone else will be giving uh, a number, and it's based on communal affiliation. Yet another person will say, okay, I'm basing it on the law of return. And even within each of those categories, the, the estimates are going to be so wildly different. There's at least tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Uh, you have large Jewish communities in Kiev, in, in the east, in Dnipro, in Kharkiv. Uh, down down in the southeast, just on the Ukrainian side of the front line, you have uh, the city of Mariupol, which is, if the Russians wanted to move in from Russia, from their separatist uh, enclaves in the east, 
and uh, link up with their forces in, in Crimea, the first thing they would do is go through Mariupol and the Jewish community. It's, uh, you used to have uh, Jewish communities in Donetsk and Lugansk, the centers of the pro-Russian insurgency. Those are now gone. Uh, most of those cities are in Kiev or in Israel or in Dnipro. Though to be fair, there is still a rabbi in, in Donetsk catering to the small rump of what was once a larger community. And, you know, it's, it's just a situation in which uh, you have these people who went through so much and they, they know it could happen again. All of the Ukrainians, Jews and non-Jews, are basically trying to prepare themselves. Uh, people all over the country are joining, you know, are joining these uh, regional defense forces that are being uh, established to enlist civilians to fight alongside the army in case there's, you know, something happens. There's a famous photo that was on the internet a few days ago of a 78-year-old woman in Mariupol being trained uh, how to shoot, how to shoot a Kalashnikov. And it's it's really, it is, it is very scary what's, what's going to happen. There were people who, when I was writing my book, I was following their progress where there was one guy, I interviewed him in Donetsk. He was the editor of the Donetsk Jewish newspaper. The next time I met him, he was a refugee in Dnipro. The next time I met him after that, he was a refugee living out of a hotel room in Kiev again another couple of years after that and he was part of a rebuilt donetsk jewish community in kiev a new shul you know a new community center slash shul uh large building you know a lot of people had gotten jobs again found new apartments and they were resettled and now you know a lot of these people as i said there was this one guy from lugansk this rabbi and he's in kiev now and he has his own shul now as well and a new community and when i said what are you going to do his first response was I can't take it anymore because he lost everything. And the thought of them move, the Russians moving on Kiev and he's going to lose everyone and everything again is just, I guess, overwhelming. You, you know, Sam, I can't imagine. Brings, yeah, you, you talk about the broader geopolitical situation, which is worrying, then the internal politics and then the, the regional politics. And all of it is looking very, very tense. I mean, at the same time, the Ukraine, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, have put in new anti-Semitism uh, anti laws, banning anti-Semitism. Is that correct? Correct. They had first passed a law regarding anti-Semitism the end of last year, but it didn't have no penalties, meaning it defined anti-Semitism and said that it's illegal to engage in a crime involving anti-Semitism. So, you know, if you beat someone, if you beat up a Jew, that's assault. If you beat up a Jew while yelling, you know, you filthy kike, suddenly it's anti-Semitic. But there was no penalty, meaning beyond the penalty for the actual, you know, crimes on the books already, there was no additional penalty for a hate crime. And the new legislation they just passed, which has, as far as I'm aware, hasn't been signed by the president yet. He has a lot on his plate basically says that anti-Semitic hate crimes can be punished by up to a fine of, I think, 5,800 grivna. I'm not sure what the conversion rate is at the moment. Uh, probably a few hundred bucks. And uh, can, be, you know, can be punished by uh, a fine or up to five years in prison. Diplomatic source that I spoke with framed it in sort of very uh, cynical terms, which was uh, saying, you know, we're passing this law now to try to get Israeli support. We're reaching out to you. Can you do something for us? And it was really framed, at least by the you know diplomatic source I spoke to, as as an effort to get Israel on board. But you know, I don't. I, I really couldn't say I'm not in their parliament speaking. Hey, the lawmakers, uh, but uh, you know, but 
one point I would make, just going back to the issue of you mentioned the geopolitics thing about this is, you know, Putin is saying that he needs guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO. What's interesting is before Putin first invaded in 2014, an overwhelming majority of Ukrainians were against the idea of ever joining NATO. And over the years of the war since, the number of Ukrainians interested in joining NATO has gone up and up and up. But meanwhile, the West has essentially said, while they refuse to rule it out on, on principle because they won't let Putin make these decisions, it's not in the cards. It was never in the cards. They're not the the NATO, the NATO countries aren't going to admit a member, no matter how fervently its people now want to join, that's partially occupied by Russia. Because the moment anything flares up, they're obligated to go to war against Russia. It was never on the cards. And the only reason that Ukrainians wanted in the first place is because of because of Putin. So the whole thing smacks of a pretext. It's so unbelievably complicated. And, and, you know, you talk about Israel wanting to, you know, get firstly its own citizens and secondly provide for Jews living there. And if we don't even know if they're between, what, 70,000 and 200,000. It makes planning very, very difficult. Sam, um, you also said that, you know, nobody really, really knows what's going to happen and anything could happen and nothing could happen. Uh, what are your thoughts in, over the next week? I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking this, you know, I would say one day at a time, I'm taking this one hour at a time. It's every time you, here's the thing. Every time people think they have a handle on what's going on, it's changing. And uh, the the U.S. keeps saying, okay, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. And there's two ways to look at that. You know, one is it's scaremongering. The other is the U.S. has concrete intelligence. And I've heard it framed in this way that every time the U.S. sees something going to happen. It's going to happen. So the Russians will go, no, 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 no. See, we're not doing what you said we're going to do. At one point, the Russian, the Americans said there's going to be an invasion by Wednesday. And the, Rus- the, the Russians were going, no, no, we never launch invasions on Wednesdays. And it's just, you know, it, it's sort of this game of cat and mouse right now. The Americans say the Russians are going to do something. The Russians don't do it. And, you know, yesterday, nobody expected suddenly there'd be firing all along the front line, shells hitting kindergartens. You know, what, what, what is worrying, though, is some of the rhetoric that the Russians are using make it sort of hard to climb down. If, if Russia made it just a geopolitical issue about NATO, about this, about that, they could spin things and claim victory. But right now, Russian state media is repeatedly banging the drum of genocide, saying over and over, they're committing genocide against civilians, the Ukrainians, and committing genocide against civilians in eastern Ukraine, in the uh, pro-Russian separatist-occupied areas. And that's sort of hard rhetoric to to back down from. And it's very similar to the rhetoric that they used in 2014, where they were complaining about fascist juntas and, you know, neo-Nazis taking over the country and, you know, making up false reports in the the Russian media about pogroms against Jews and, you know, attacks on Jews left, right, and center. And, Look at the, you know, the uh, rampage of reactionary and forces when the Russians start yelling about genocide, about, you know, human rights violations, about we have to defend people. You know, it's it's very hard to back down from that. 
Well, we'll have to be. Uh, we'll have to watch your columns and highlights to get uh, updates. Uh, it's always fantastic to talk to you, Sam, because you have such insight. You've been to the region. You understand both the local and the, as I said, geopolitics uh, of the, both countries. So, thank you so much for your insights. And yeah, certainly we'll be following this uh, with great interest. In the meantime, I wish you Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Sam Sokol, a journalist for Haaretz and um, a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, as well as the former international and Jewish affairs correspondent for the Jerusalem Post.